welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as S. George at R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at Matt Swartz 723 All right, everyone. So as you all know, Michigan played Michigan State over the weekend and kicked some absolute ass, but the outcome of the game was overshadowed by some extracurricular activities that took place after the game. It, we all know what they are at this point. If you don't know, I don't know where you've been for the last three days. Please <laughs> get on the internet, but get on it less frequently than I do because it's bad for your brain. Yeah, don't do it. We all know what happened, and I think everybody wants to start the recap there, and so we are going to start the recap there. The takes are so bad. Like, I just, I'm forever perplexed at how absolutely fucking stupid people are. Like, is that, that's my own fault, I think. (laughs) Yeah, you really need to set the bar lower, especially for this fan base, the Michigan State fan base. Sweet Jesus, it has been rough out there the last couple days. It's been really bad. I mean, we, I have seen all kinds of justification They're blaming tunnel designs and people skipping and people being in the proximity or vicinity of other people. Or waving. Or waving. Like, come on, guys. Like, truly. I mean, like, I have a fundamental belief, and this is the thing. Matt is like, Serena, you are so stupid because I will sit on the internet all night long feeding the trolls. I think it's because I have some sort of like optimistic belief that like if you can show people that your argument is better than theirs, that you're right and they're wrong. Oh yeah, that's your mistake. <laughs> I know. Like I, I just, I argue everything like I'm in a court. I'm like, oh, I'm, well, no, the Penn State incident is distinguishable because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't include this level of violence, blah, blah, blah. So you can see that these things aren't, and people are like, don't care three incidents in seven Seven games, but you know what I mean. And like, I, I, like I have this fundamental belief. I think that people can be better than this. And so I spent like I don't know half of my weekend on the fucking internet trying to get people to see the light on this, and they literally will not. The tribalism is like out of control. Right. That was never going to happen from the beginning. Correct. But they, I'm. They know stupid. what side they're on, and there's only one argument. And it's Michigan is at fault, and we will find a way to blame it on Michigan, regardless of all the videos that we've all seen, which are horrific. And I mean, yeah, that was inevitable, but also completely misaligned with the actual evidence slash footage slash everything that we know about the situation. Right. I mean, I'm stupid, so I, you know, have hope for humanity, and that's my own (laughs) fault. But I just, you know, there was so much victim blaming going on everybody is blaming Jaden McBurrows and Jermon Green for being in the wrong place at the wrong time or not being where they were supposed to be and those justifications are insane to me like okay I can leave my front door unlocked that doesn't mean you don't commit a crime if you come steal everything in my fucking house right we've talked about that's not how this shit works right the opportunity to do something heinous does not give you the right to do something heinous that's just very obviously true in all circumstances And I think this one has been a little bit, I don't know if skewed is the right word, but I think people are looking at it in a different angle because they just played a football game and some of them were still wearing pads. And so it's, people are trying to put it in the context of like, well, it was sort of football adjacent and, you know, maybe there was some provocation and as long as they get suspended or whatever, that's fine. But like under any other normal circumstances, like if you and I had been walking out of Michigan Stadium and six Michigan State fans jumped us and started beating us over the head, 
like that's obviously a crime right i mean you're the lawyer but and yeah i'm gonna go with uh, crime we are, I, yeah we should spend some time with you talking about actual kind of what where this is going given that it does appear headed in that direction i can do that but yeah i mean this was obviously just horrific and unacceptable in every way and it sounds like jamon green is going to be pressing charges which is entirely in his right and if i, I want, were him i would probably be doing the same thing i want to be very specific jamon green can't press uh, well, charges right, yes, understood only like the prosecutors can press charges what jamon green is doing is bringing a suit for civil liability this is a money damages situation as with respect to the suit brought by green and his family but well, that I'm doesn't sure on preclude the, the prosecutors from also pressing criminal charges right. so you can be charged both you know civilly and criminally at the same time i think the real interpretation of that is that he is going to push for and cooperate with like an effort to have prosecutors pursue charges against the michigan state players and completely understandably so i mean this was violent and there need to be serious consequences and personally i don't think that being suspended for the rest of a season that's already played out the string for michigan's like this was their this was the end for them there's nothing left that matters after the Michigan game. So suspending guys for games that nobody gives a shit about in or around that program to me is not sufficient punishment. I think they need to go farther than that. And I mean, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm not saying like, oh yeah, supermax prison for life. Like I'm obviously realistic about, you know, consequences versus actions and the, the degree of each of those things. But I think this was serious enough that there needs to be real punishment. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on the, criminal justice system that are probably better suited for a different podcast than this one. But, you know, I'm, I'm generally reluctant to, you know, give people criminal records, right. Sure. As, as just a general proposition, but it's not hard for me to understand why you would want it to go that way is what I'm saying. And so, you know, I, I the criminal justice system isn't getting reformed today or tomorrow or anytime soon. So I suppose all we can really do is operate within the confines of the systems that we have. And my There's... thing is the, the, the reason I feel like it kind of has to go that way, frankly, is that I don't really trust institutions to police themselves. No institution has ever done a good job of policing itself, Michigan included. I mean, when you look at what its history has kind of been with respect to, you know, all of the, the you know, the stuff in the athletic department and, and the university at large. I mean, they've had like huge, you know, sexual assault, sexual harassment scandals, all of this stuff. And that's because they're a self-policing entity. They're trying to police themselves and not doing a particularly good job. I don't expect Michigan State Athletics to do a better job than that and I'm not sure that anybody else has the jurisdiction to do anything I mean the Big Ten might I mean Kevin Warren kind of made a few statements he was at the game but no one else really has the jurisdiction to do anything about this besides like Michigan State and the authorities and so right you know we'll get to this but a few of the players involved have already been suspended um, so there is something kind of developing in that regard, but I get it. I mean, if you want to, if you want to involve the legal system, I, I'm not sure I would necessarily do it, but I'm not going to begrudge you that decision, I suppose. For me, it's not just that there is an institutional limit or not really a limit, but like we've had a history of institutions not effectively policing themselves. I think is that was your description and that's correct. But also I think above and beyond that, there are things where, and this has come up. 
I think multiple times over the last few years in and around sports where there are things that are very obviously not directly tied to the sport, the action on the field. It's one thing where it's like, oh, that was targeting. That was a dangerous play. That guy's going to be suspended for half a game. That's a football punishment in relation to a football action. And there are obviously things where once you get outside of that and you're no longer talking about something that happened within the the confines of the arena or the field in, in this case, like, I don't know how you try to ascribe some degree of appropriate punishment that is football specific to something violent slash bad that happened outside of football. And to me, this pretty clearly crossed that line of like, this was especially violent. I mean, Gemin Green, the report is that he has a concussion, may have a broken nose and is questionable at best for the, for the Rutgers game, which isn't ideal. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's probably an NFL draft pick and this is, you know, genuinely impacting his season and, you know, maybe the rest of the season, we don't know. Like, obviously, you know, the, the hope is that he'll be quickly healed and back and this will not end up being anything for him, but we don't actually know that. And so when you think about the repercussions of this for Gemin Green in particular, um, maybe also Jaden McGrows, I don't think we have gotten much detail exactly on, on what his injuries or the results of this were for him, but... I just look at it as like this is something that went way past the line of like football violence or football activity that you can adequately punish by ascribing some football related punishment like a suspension from games or whatever that might look like so that's my take and I, I, like you said it's I'm not necessarily eager to like jump right into the criminal justice system and have that be the first line of defense for all these kinds of things but there are things where it's like yeah that that probably needs to be addressed that way because there isn't really an adequate solution otherwise. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of wanted to save the legal stuff for the end, but you gave me such a good little like segue there that I'm going to at least raise this component of it. The, that kind of tension that you identified is actually the important like legal principle here in some ways. So, you know, people are talking about, well, it's like part of the game, like hits are part of the game. It's a violent game. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to, I think, rightly, or you put it rightly, they're not doing this rightly, but you put it rightly, that they're not fully wrapping their brains around the situation because it is kind of cloaked in football in a way that if it happened on a street corner, you would be thinking about it entirely differently. Right. If that had been us leaving the stadium surrounded by Michigan State fans and we got our heads bashed in with helmets, like everybody would be like, that's obviously a crime. This was just players in the tunnel after the game. And so it's like visually you almost, almost can connect it more to the football game even though the game's over and it's obviously outside of that, uh, you know, that right. sphere of, of happenings. That's kind of the like legal principle too, which is to say, you know, I took sports law when I was in school, fun class, shout out to Sherman Clark. He was my professor, but um, you're presumed to have consented to a certain amount of contact when you play the sport of football. I think that's obviously the case, right? You can't, you know, if someone hits you and you tear your ACL, like you can't sue them, right? Yeah, you course. can't even sue them if it's a late hit or like a, like a dirty hit a little bit because it's like, okay, you're playing this sport and you reasonably expect that not every hit is going to be perfectly squarely within the area that you're allowed to be hit. Someone might go a little low. And so there's a certain amount of consent you are presumed to have made 
by agreeing to play this sport. And when you really get into situations where charges can be filed, where civil lawsuits can be brought, it's because you've exceeded the scope of that presumed consent, right? So like when I walk around on a day-to-day basis, I get on the blue line, right? Uh, The CTA blue line. People are going to bump into me, right? Mm -hmm. It's a train. I, they haven't battered me. They haven't sure. assaulted me, right? I am presumed to consent to a certain amount of contact just by going out into the world. Does that mean that I can get punched in the face on the CTA because I'm presumed to have consented to a certain amount of contact? Like, no, of course not. That's obviously beyond the bounds of what I've consented to by agreeing to go out into the world. And this is very obviously beyond the bounds of what, you know, can be re- even close to reasonably consented to on a football field It happened well after the game it wasn't part of the game it's not like it wasn't even like a brawl broke out during the game which i still think you might not be able to sue for right if it's a bunch of guys pushing and shoving and some punches get thrown that's probably something where you sort of participated in that and realistically consented to you know if you're throwing punches then you might also get punched and there's probably some degree of right this does not look like that as far as we can tell based on any of the video that we've seen so far and so and that includes the abc tunnel cam which captured pretty much the whole thing it's a little bit behind so you can't actually see all the way back into the tunnel where they're first entering but you can see a lot more than you could see from the initial videos and everything thus far is pretty well confirmed that this was an unwarranted attack yeah I, i think that's right and so it's, you know, there's a lot of talk from Michigan State fans in particular, people, and the Michigan State media, my God. Like, be... Uh, it's legitimately embarrassing and shameful, the way that they stand up for that program, even in the face of things that are obviously just atrocious actions. And you have video all over the place to prove it, and they're coming up with just the most outlandish conspiracy theories and nonsensical bullshit to try to defend it. And it's like, can you try to be reasonable and unbiased for like two seconds and the answer is clearly no it's really bad we're getting a lot of that from them and you know they're talking about okay mcburrows is skipping up into the tunnel why is he doing that where is he going and like you know gem and green i think was ahead of him based on all accounts actually that like green is not visible because he is already inside and that's how mcburrows gets involved as as far as I understand, he sees Green getting like ganged up on and he tries to help and that's when he gets kind of dragged the other way and kicked and pushed and whatever is going on in the video that we see of McBurrows. And so th- they're talking about this like, you know, he was probably going there to start shit. He was probably going there to talk shit. Number one, all of that is entirely uncorroborated, right? There is not a single report that exists that says they were chirping at all, that says they were talking shit at all. And maybe they were, but ultimately that's not a justification for you to behave this way, right? So like legal principle number two is that when you're reason, when you're provoked, you can only respond to the provocation that you have received with like a level of response that is like commiserate with the provocation, right? Mm -hmm. So like, if you slap me, I don't get to shoot you. That's not how this works, right? Like, you ha- like it has to be proportionate to what you're on the receiving end of. And frankly, there are no words. There are literally no words that can be spoken mm-hmm. that are a provocation for getting, like, bashed over the head with a helmet. There, there aren't any. And so— Well, and the other thing is that, I mean, they just spent 60 minutes 
of game time, like three and a half talking hours of real shit. time talking shit to each other. And there's a reason those Michigan State guys didn't attack on the field, pull their helmets off, and start beating people because you know that's not acceptable. And they only did it in the tunnel when they were, you know, nine guys on one and they thought nobody was looking so they could get away with it. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And so the the arguments are bad. There's no real provocation for this. It's wild to me how many people are more concerned with hypothetical shit talk than they are with honest to God violence that is proven and known, right? Like what the, the fuck is wrong with you that right. you're more mad about hypothetical chirping, chirping that literally nobody knows exists at all and might not exist. And almost certainly if it did exist was no different than what was happening for the last four hours. Like, I, I just don't get it. And the tunnel is the other one. Like, the tunnel is the other version of victim blaming here, which we kind of already touched on. But, I mean, there's been a whole bunch now, like you said, of the oh, it's two weeks in a row of issues at Michigan Stadium tunnels. Like, first of all, there have been 600 games played at Michigan Stadium. And this is the, what, third time we've heard of something happening in the tunnel. Last year's Ohio State game, then the Penn State game. I feel like there were a couple more. Like, I think 2013, Ohio State had some jawing. But, like, we're talking about jawing. These are football teams, for fuck's sake. Right. That stuff happens all the time. Like, the players are out there on the field next to each other, running around the whole game. It's not unreasonable to think that they can be in, like, the general vicinity of each other in the tunnel and not attack each other and commit, you know, criminal assault. And so that's just not... A valid argument for me like out of 600 games you've seen a handful of times where there's chirping and now all of a sudden you've got guys jumping and beating the shit out of other like <laughs> singled out players like also, that's that, it, that's not that's not a it's not even an issue it's it's a crime that you committed also it is entirely in bad faith to take those incidences and lump them together like they are the same yes. they're not penn state threw an uncrustable and they yelled <laughs> Like, come on, Ohio State, they were getting in each other's faces and yelling. By the way, we saw that on the field, too. Correct. Multiple times. Multiple during that times, game. right? Yes. None of those things were out of the ordinary for sports. This was something on an entirely different level that cannot be compared. And it's just, it, it's not an issue with the tunnel when you are committing crimes in the tunnel against single players who you've picked out and, and dragged away so you can kick and bash I don't know. Head, like... If you mug someone in an alley, I think it's definitely because alleys exist. <laughs> That's true. Like People like, don't kill people. Alleys kill people. I can't. I mean, like, this is a brain-dead take. It really is. And I've seen so many brain-dead takes over the last 48 hours that I, I like... Y'all are making me dumber by forcing me to read yeah, this. Yeah, we've got brain honestly. cells dying with every every tweet from a Michigan State fan. It's, yeah, it's, it's not great. so bad. And so there, there's been a lot of that. It's really frustrating. I, I it, mean... It is, but it's also just more confirmation that... I mean, this is what Michigan State's program has been for the last 15 to 20 years, is the entire identity of it is beat slash hate Michigan. And that's it. That's all there is to it. And I've seen, I've seen a few people saying over the last 48 hours or so that, like, we need to take a step back in this rivalry. It's gotten too impassioned, too vitriolic for a rivalry. And I don't necessarily think that's wrong. But the idea that there is going to be a step back of the hatred between these two programs is, to me, very Pollyanna, basically. Like, you can't have one side whose entire identity is built on measuring itself against 
hating and beating the other and have any form of a step back. Like, I just don't think that can happen with what Michigan State is without an entire identity slash cultural overhaul that we've seen absolutely zero signs of. If anything, it's gotten more intense over the last 15 or so years, ever since Mark D'Antonio took over, really, and he made that the identity. We, for several years, kind of called out to Michigan, like, we need to take this game more seriously. And now it appears that they have under Harbaugh. I mean, he certainly seems to be taking it seriously. And so the only option is that one side takes a step back. The other one can't. It just literally can't based on everything about it. So to me, that's just not, it's not realistic. It's sort of like looking at the political landscape and being like, we all just need to work together and be more collaborative and listen to each other's ideas. Like there is polarization that's like, we're through the looking glass there. There's no going back and you just have to figure out how to manage it from there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, I don't know how you take the venom out of this thing. I, I don't. I'm. I don't think it can be done. Frankly, I don't either. Just not play it for a while. Like literally, just not play it. Like Maybe. put it on pause for ten years. Like what? What happened? What happened the other day is not going to make the Big Ten or anybody else pull the trigger on Michigan and Michigan State not playing each other anytime no. soon. But that might be the only thing. Like literally, just separate these people for as long as possible. And see yeah. if that takes the venom out of it. I, but no one's going to do it. There's too much money in it. There's too, like, the, it can't be done. But, right. yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Um, so. But like I said, it just, it is confirmation of, I mean, this is what we have always kind of seen Michigan State as. It was like to some degree of this, basically. The Pat Narduzzi 60 minutes of necessary roughness. And all of that shit that they have just clung to and, like I said, made their identity. I don't think they can go back from that. And just seeing everything that played out Saturday night, it was like, this is part of their culture. The, like, lock you in the woodshed, go for their knees kind of thing. Correct. Is... When you've made that your culture, necessary roughness, <laughs> like, you're kind of bordering on a level of violence that, really should not be should not ever be approached or crossed and, and the fact that yeah, they crossed I mean, it michigan to me is just has, not michigan athletics have their issues with culture but this is not among sure. them right the the like just intentionally violent i think is right. like i mean we've been hearing about it for the long i mean who's that clown of a rivals writer that was talking about devin gardner's knees oh god yeah, i can't remember his name jim whatever the fuck his name is yeah clown total clown <laughs> that it's like right, and this is media members talking about going after michigan players needs like to injure them students. correct and and that's like that's just everything that's that that's adequately encapsulates everything around this program and the way it's been for 15 years and it did feel like it was escalating to something bad at certain times and now it's just gone one step further in a way that well, know, frankly felt like i didn't ever think it would get this bad where you'd have actual assaults in the tunnel but it's also not that far removed from things we have seen from Michigan State on and off the field. Right, like a brawl felt like it was right. coming at some point or another, you know? And that's the thing about this rivalry. Like, I tweeted during the game right at the very beginning that was like, I always fucking hate this game. And that's in part because it's always just like a fucking clench, like terrible, gross game that like I have to get through. But it's also because you feel that level of dis dislike 365 days a year and like the day that it comes to a head 
is miserable. I don't enjoy it. Right. And it's a matter of getting past it and hoping to feel relief at the end that you can move on from that. And you've kind of put Michigan State back in their place and you don't have to think about them for a little while. Correct. And that's that's the thing. Like, I, I don't feel that way about the Ohio State game. It doesn't have that level no. of like a venom for me. And no, it's gotten heated at times, but sure. it's also like it's also very clear that both programs respect each other as like the ultimate rival, Michigan especially against Ohio State because Ohio State rolls out an elite team every year. That's what you have to measure yourself against if you're going to compete for Big 10 and or national titles. So I think there's a very clear like this is kind of the program that we have to aspire to be if we're going to ever achieve our goals. And I don't think Michigan looks at Michigan State that way. I mean, there's a reason they're little brother, right? And everything that we saw Saturday night was just the most little brother-ass bullshit. They are who we thought they were. It's exactly what they are, exactly what they have been, and exactly what they always will be. Yeah. I mean, I I don't even really know what (laughs) else to say. We got some suspensions. I mean, Michigan State did come out and suspend four players right off the jump, and I think more are likely coming. Yeah, one of them was uh, Kari Crump, who was the player seen hitting Jemin Green over the head with his helmet. I assume he's probably going to be in for the most severe punishment of whatever ends up getting doled out here. Uh, the others were Tariq Brown, Angelo Gross, and Zion Young, who were all kind of, I don't know, a- aggravants in that situation. The one who didn't get suspended, which was interesting from all the video we've seen, was Jacoby Windman who appeared to be throwing punches and, and like holding, holding Jemin Green as he was getting hit over the head. I mean, that's about as egregious as anything we saw from anybody else other than Crump. So I have to think punishment's coming down for him now that there's video out there. Also, yeah. Windman and Xavier Henderson were at the podium after the game for post-game press conferences. And I will give Xavier Henderson a little bit of credit for what actually happened in the tunnel because he was pulling guys away. It seemed to be you know, attempting to diffuse the situation to the and extent like, that And, like, was, was directing the rest of the team into the locker room. He was, like, tr- being a traffic cop. So I will give Xavier Henderson some credit there. But also, those two players were at the podium, and they were asked, did you see the incident? And Jacoby Winman didn't say anything. And Xavier Henderson said, nah. And, like, you can't get up there and lie about that. That's some spineless horse shit. You can't do that. I'm very surprised that they let them get up there without some direction of if you get asked about it, no comment or the team's looking into it or something along those lines. But you can't get up there and say, nah, I didn't see it when you were in the fucking middle of it. And one of your guys was throwing punches and holding somebody down to get beat over the head. That is not acceptable. And that to me just furthers the idea that Winman needs to face serious punishment, even though he's faced nothing yet. A little curious about the Winman situation because it wasn't until the ABC ESPN video that was released today showed that Winman was involved. Um, but, but, um, one thing that is notable there is, so you can see in the initial video that was released on Sunday, um, you can see the player Crump who's hitting Jemin Green over the head with his helmet. Mm -hmm. And you can see that there is another player there and you can't see who it is because Michigan State's equipment manager is in the way. I think it was their director of football ops. Who, Whatever he is. He's standing there about five feet in front of them watching it. And as he realizes the severity of what's happening, he turns and runs away. But he is seeing what's happening right in front of him. So he definitely knew knew that it was Jacoby Winman who was right there. And I kind of am curious, not 
accusing, but speculating. <laughs> I'm speculating that they were hopeful that there would not be another angle that made clear who that player was so that they don't have to trot out Ben Van Sumer in a linebacker anymore. <laughs> that is a, a rough fallback plan. To be fair, Angelo Gross is also a starter and was among those suspended. So. Yeah, but if you have the if you have the video that shows that he is involved, you have the video that sure. shows that he's involved. But the video that shows Winman's involvement, you could not tell who that player was because the director of football ops is in the way. That's a fair and it point. wasn't until so they had no choice. His name's on the back of his fucking shirt. But it wasn't until you we could see that it was Winman in the video that got released today and we couldn't see that before because the angle was different. And part of me wonders if they were hopeful that another angle would not come out so that they didn't, their hand wasn't forced into suspending another starter. Right. Then again, their season's fucking over, so who gives a shit? You <laughs> yeah. know what I mean? And we're obviously well past that now. I mean, there's cameras all over the place. Not only the cell phone videos that we saw originally, but the, the ABC tunnel cam we were referencing that shows, again, you can't see all the way back into the tunnel to see like Gem and Green initially coming up, but you can see pretty much everything that happens thereafter. And it is... In the words of Jim Harbaugh, I think egregious and just obviously not acceptable. So, I guess we're going to find out here in the next, uh, I don't know, next few days, next week or two, what the kind of more, uh, what the extent of this punishment is actually going to be from a Michigan State and or Big Big Ten standpoint. Yeah. And then law enforcement as well is, I think, very likely to end up involved here. Yeah, I want to say one more thing using just like logic. I know this is going to be hard, Sparty, so keep up. But I want to make clear there's a lot of we don't know who started. We don't know who did what. We don't know who did what. I just want you to ask yourselves if there were even a chance that Gemin Green was hitting people over the head with a helmet first, do you honestly think Mel Tucker would get up there, apologize, and suspend four players on his team indefinitely? And not reference that at all. And not make any reference to that at all? Right. I just don't believe it. I think if he had reason to believe, any reason to believe, that there was an initiation by Michigan of this mm-hmm. situation, he would have said, "We're trying to get to the bottom of it." Like we, you know, we're having, we're hearing conflicting stories about who was responsible. Like I feel like we would have gotten something along those lines. We didn't get any of that shit. I mean, also out of the many different. Uh, video angles that we have there's absolutely zero indication of any of that so there's just no reason to think that that happened like i just i don't think you're getting up there and suspending your players and like not only that but like pissing all of them off because if you're a player and you come to your coach and you say coach i didn't start this he was hitting me mm-hmm. and I had to, and then your coach gets up at the podium and throws his players under the bus, right? How are those players going to feel? If he had any reason to believe he felt like he needed to stand up for his players, I think he would have. And then even the next day, I mean, he's out there issuing an apology. Like, I think they know how bad this was and how evident it was that one side was almost, if not entirely in the wrong here in a violent and really disturbing way. Yeah. I, I just, I don't buy it. I, I think he would get up there and fight for his players just because he, he, he can't lose his roster. I mean, like, you don't <laughs> right. want to lose the confidence of your roster. If your roster genuinely believes that they're the aggrieved party here and they let their coach, like, you know, throw them under the bus like that, like, those players aren't going to want to play for you. They're not going to want to come back. Like, from a, 
an ability for him to do his coaching job perspective, I don't think he can throw them under the bus unless he has to. And I right. kind of think he the reason why he did is because he has to. Yeah, I think that's right. He doesn't have a choice because he knows they're wrong. And I, I just, right. I think he would be fighting this otherwise. Agreed. I, wh- whatever. I think they've seen enough to know how bad it was. And at this point, they're more concerned about really serious things, including like actual criminal charges coming down on some of these players. And so they're trying to kind of cushion it at this point, like... Oh, you know, we're sorry. We're doing whatever we can to cooperate. We don't want this to go any further than it already has because we know how bad it is and how bad it looks for us and our guys who are there doing and how really bad it could shit. be for your players. Correct. I mean, you know, we talked about this and you talked about this a little bit, but like, if you t- change the context, right? Like, I remember a few years ago, I had to Google his name because I could not remember it. But like, a Michigan player threw a punch like absolutely decked a guy outside of Skeeps. It was Jim Harbaugh's first year. That's right, Cassante York. York. I had to Google it, but I was like, who's that guy who threw a punch outside of Skeeps? He was like kicked off the team. There were char- like there were charges. There were like all of that stuff occurred. Right. And it's like, okay, you change the setting. And it's very obvious that this is like not a reasonable way to behave. And so it's like, okay, we know what's going on here. I t- kind of talked about the legal stuff already. I'm not going to do too much more, but Gem and Green's got a civil suit. He's going to be seeking money damages for his injury. Basically, that's going to come down to a question of, do they have a defense, a provocation defense, something that shows that Green was not battered mm-hmm. by you know the Michigan State players because Green provoked? And like it's going to be all of the same issues that we're arguing about on the internet are actually going to be the issues mm-hmm. that are fought about in a court of law, except that... Um, the court has to actually accept the evidence when you give it to them. That's how it works. Unlike Michigan State they fans, just who come do up not, with insane insp- who do conspiracy not have to accept the evidence when you give it to right. them. Well, the courts mostly have to accept <laughs> the evidence when you give it to them. Fair enough. But as for criminal charges, I mean, I think the worst of it, obviously, is going to be for Crump because the helmet's a weapon. As opposed to, you know, the McBurrow situation, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but that looks more to me like a misdemeanor, Mm -hmm. the kind of thing where like, okay, maybe you get a conviction in a diversion program type of situation. If they were to go that route, I think from my perspective, I think it's more likely that no charges are filed in that situation and Mm -hmm. that charges are filed on the green part of the incident, if I had to guess but it's just a guess, and it's really more about how much the powers that be push it. I mean, I think if Michigan really wants to get these people charged, they they can lobby to do that. Like, I think Jim Harbaugh can lobby to do that. Yeah, from everything we've heard from Jim and Green and Jim Harbaugh, they They're seem very, down. yeah, this is very much, we are going to push for whatever it takes to get justice here, or whatever we think is justice. They have been very unequivocal about that. And then today, at the press conference, Blake Corum who is now actually my favorite <laughs> Michigan player of all time. Like, he's a, he's number one. It's done. I'm sorry, Denard. You will always be very, very special to me, but it's Corum. He got up there and gave the most amazing quote. He is an epic shit talker because he does it in the best possible way. He's the kind of shit talker that's like, I'm better than you, and in every word that comes out of my mouth, I'm going to make it clear mm-hmm. that I am better than you without ever saying that I'm better than you. And that's exactly what he did. He just got up there and basically said, like, I don't know how you do that as a man. Yeah, the exact quote was, as a man, I wouldn't have felt good ganging up on a couple of players. That's not how I roll. And just that, as a man, is just so cutting. Like, how can you look at yourself as somebody purporting to be a man 
and jump a guy with seven, eight, nine people kicking him on the ground. Like, that is so low. And if you think about that for two seconds, you should be embarrassed. That's the way that he, yeah, his trash talk comes across is like, if you think about this for two seconds, you're going to realize how, how little I think of <laughs> yes, you. Yes, exactly. Exactly how little I think of you. And I loved that because I agree with him. That's exactly, that's exactly how I felt after watching those videos is like, how can you look at yourself? Right. And I love Blake Corum. Blake Corum is the absolute fucking best favorite player ever in Michigan history. Love him. <laughs> Just... And that's it. I mean, that's how I feel. I think he summed up my feelings about this situation quite well. And with that, I'm going to throw it to you for the Zen take. This was the <laughs> Zen take. We were talking about this for like a good chunk of the car ride back from Ann Arbor to Chicago yesterday. Oh, yeah. So it took, I mean, even before we came back to Chicago. So we were in and around Ann Arbor Saturday night. Getting out of Ann Arbor was a fucking nightmare. It took us two hours to get out of like the Ann Arbor city limits which was pretty frustrating. Um, and you, we don't have great cell service, obviously, around the stadium within like a couple mile radius. It's a shit show. And so it was you know, kind of frustrating in that regard. But we're sitting there and we're you know, trying to get videos of what happened, trying to understand better what happened. And, uh, and we get back to Serena's parents' house where we're staying and it's you know, like 2 a.m. at this point. And I feel like we're, we're both kind of just like frustrated and upset about what has happened. And I'm like laying in bed trying to fall asleep and still like my mind is racing and I just feel... Meanwhile, I'm feeding the trolls online and that's <laughs> right. like, it's 2.30, go to bed, you fucking idiot. You're the, the XKCD comic. <laughs> Come to bed. I can't. Someone is wrong on the internet. That's literally me. I can't help it. I can't help it. I think minds and hearts can be changed and they can't, but I'm trying. You innocent child. <laughs> Shut up. No, so I'm laying there and I'm like, why? I just feel like so frustrated. And I just, we just sat in the stadium and it was a fucking beautiful night. It was, you know, 50 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. We watched Michigan just kick the shit out of Michigan State. Like, sure, you know, it could have been 100 to nothing and that would have been slightly more satisfying. But for the most part, we got the game we wanted. It was cathartic. We got the little brother chant at the end. And now it's a couple hours later and I'm like, I'm just kind of angry or frustrated or whatever it is. Like, why do I feel like this? And like, it's obvious why I felt like that. And I just started thinking about it. And I was like, I don't have to give Michigan state this distraction. Like we waited for a year to get revenge for last year. And we had the bye week we had the night, it was a long two week lead up and we got everything we wanted out of that game. And it was awesome. And we're there singing Mr. Brightside and you know, the light show. And I was like, this is, this is great. This is beautiful. I don't have to give them thinking that they got like got one over on us in the tunnel or after the game or that they somehow came out ahead in this. I don't have to give them the the respect the or the satisfaction. the satisfaction of feeling like they somehow came out ahead of this or, or feeling that they've left Michigan fans upset despite, again, Michigan just really kicking the shit out of them in every capacity of that game. And I thought about that and I just thought, Again, they are what we thought they were in every way. And I went into that game. If you listen to this podcast last week, you heard me talking about how I'm not worried. And I was never worried. Even during the game, you can vouch for that. Like, even when they scored, I was like, it's fine. They were going to get a couple. They cannot hang with us for 60 minutes. It just can't happen. Meanwhile, I was in the fetal position. Right. But I, I was entirely confident the whole game. And as I watched it play out and then thinking about it later, I thought they are what we thought they were. 
and I mean that off the field, and I mean it on the field. We saw a very good football team just kick the shit out of a very bad football team. We know exactly where these two programs stand, and I just felt like this this peace, and I went right to sleep. Very zen. I don't have to give them the satisfaction. We are very good. They are very bad and embarrassing. They were defeated without dignity in the phrasing of the, the daily. I can't believe that. I floated that as the episode title for this fucking episode like yesterday morning. <laughs> and I'm so mad that they scooped me on that shit. It's all right. It was a good, uh, it, it was a good cover. Undignified, defeated undignified, bitch. The, that's right. But yeah, that's, that's what I came out to was like, we're very good. They're very bad and embarrassing. And I can go to sleep knowing that that's exactly where these two programs stand. And that was it. And I've felt good ever since. What is it like Mad Men? Like the like I don't think about you at all. Yeah, or it's whatever. the, the meme from, from like in the elevator when the one guy says, "I feel bad for you," and the other guy says, "I don't think about you at all." And that's exactly I think how Michigan kind of looks at this rivalry. Is Michigan State's like, or at least has historically, it was like Michigan State just everything in them is hatred for Michigan, and for Michigan we just have bigger goals. We talked about it all last year. Like we lost to Michigan State, and by the end of the year we didn't really give a shit. Because we beat Ohio State, we won the Big Ten, and we made the playoff. And those are ultimately Michigan's goals. We have bigger goals above and beyond this rivalry, and Michigan State doesn't. And we should remember that, basically, when we look at these two programs. We know exactly what they are. That's that. Matt is still in his shit-talking era. That was like, you're like four steps behind Blake Corn. Like, you're, <laughs> you're a little more work, and I think you'll get there. I mean, I told you last week, I said we're going to put them back in their place. And they help they us are do in it their place. because, my God, have they ever looked lower? N- yeah. Like, literally ever. Like, talk about in your place. Yeah, I meant like, more on the field when I said but that. All but of it, all I mean, of it. You're yes. leagues behind. I mean, Jesus. So Correct. And this is a, t- I mean, this is a team that's not going to make a bowl game. They're about to go 5-7 and seven at best with Illinois and Penn State still on the schedule. I don't think they're going to win either of those games. And that requires beating Rutgers and Indiana, which, if you go off something like SP+, Plus, are functionally the same team as Michigan State. Like, those are borderline toss-ups. And they've got to win both of those to get to five and seven without a bunch of suspended players and with a team that you know is going to pack it in now that their season is over after losing to Michigan. So, like, I wouldn't be surprised if this team ends up four and eight. And then they're losing Peyton Thorne, Jaden Reed, and what very few players they have on defense, Jacob Slade, Xavier Henderson. I mean, this program is a mess right now. It's not getting any better anytime soon. And I think with that, we can talk a little bit more about the game specifically. <laughs> yeah, finally, like 45 minutes we can talk about the game. <laughs> yeah, that that's about right. <laughs> My God. I, yeah, I, I, that was a guess. How, how many minutes are we in right we now? We are 43 minutes in. Kill it. Start with the defense, I suppose, our defense. I do think we should start with the defense. So I mean, that was... Oh, it go was ahead. frustrating to start, for me at least, because... The exact thing that we knew was going to happen happened, and that didn't make me any less annoyed by it, which was the, you know, Keon Coleman going Braylon mode for, like, one quarter. And I was like, okay, that's annoying, and it's exactly what I expected, and I'm still annoyed by it. That doesn't make it feel any better (laughs) that I knew totally knew it was coming. Sure, like some Ohio State games, right, where it's like, I kind of know what's going to happen here, but as it's happening, it still doesn't feel good. Yeah, you're like, I don't fucking like it, you know? Um, So that was a little annoying. But the other thing is, was like, man, they can't run the ball for shit. No. Michigan State cannot. We were absolutely living in their backfield. Yeah. Just yeah. living in it. You hand off the ball. Like, I think they average 1.6 yards per carry. 
yeah. which is just absolutely repulsive. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> gross. Correct. And it's not like, I don't know if that's sack adjusted or not. But That was not sack adjusted. But they also they had didn't a... take that many sacks. I mean, Peyton Thorne had a lot of time to throw he in took this game. Two, two sacks. But so he also like, had, I think, three scrambles. He had five carries. So on the net, Peyton Thorne actually didn't lose yards in the game. So, like... So this was a complete shutdown of their running game. Totally bad. Yeah. So like... I do want to go back to your point about Keon Coleman. So I I looked this up, and on their second and third drives, the second drive being the touchdown drive, and then the third drive being the one where they drove deep into Michigan territory and got stopped on on fourth and one, um, they had... uh, Keon Coleman specifically had 104 yards on four catches. And he was... I mean, he was just going up and taking the ball away from good coverage, mostly Gem and Green at that point. And after that drive, there was a pretty clear adjustment where Michigan started playing what they call cloud, which is essentially you just shade a safety over the top of wherever that guy is, and you kind of bracket him. And you say, if you're going to throw a deep ball to him, you're going to be throwing it into double coverage. And that was the end of Michigan State's offense. And in the second half, they had negative one yards until their last desperation drive that ended with the Rodmore interception. And to your point, averaged 1.6 yards a carry. If you do strip out... Uh, the 21-yard loss they had on the the punt, the quote-unquote trouble with the snap punt. Deeply funny. Yeah, Thank we'll you, back. Sean McDonough, for absolutely nailing that call. Just incredible irony. We really appreciate it. And I liked it a lot. It's Thank kind you. of cathartic. Like, now that I hear it, the more recent version is like, well, now it's just funny because <laughs> we got our version of it in an ass-kicking of Michigan State, and it's like, all right, that's he really that just did. kind of soothes the, the, the lingering resentment from that situation. I'm using the word venom a lot today, but it re- he really did kind of just, like, suck the venom yeah. out of that one. You know, I was like, strong, strong, Sean McDonough. I like that. Yeah, so even if you take out the uh, 21, negative 21 yards they got on that play, which counts as a, a rushing yard because, it, I mean, the guy picked up the ball and was, like, trying to kind of scramble with it briefly before he got obliterated in the backfield um they still averaged under three yards a carry they just had no running game this was i I don't think mozzie smith and chris jenkins are like dominant all america level players because they don't give you like the mohurst pass rush they have some weaknesses but they are absolute monsters in the run game they absolutely dominated the interior michigan state offensive line which we knew wasn't good but this was another game second in a row if you go back to penn state I mean, in which the running backs did not have a carry longer than nine yards. In this game, the running back long was eight yards. Gross. And again, the average, as you pointed out, was 1.6. Or if you adjust for you know just pure running plays, it was, I think, 2.7 yards a carry. Gross. It, they couldn't do anything. And again, once they took away Keon Coleman, just said, we're going to put a guy over the top of you, that was it. Jaden Reed was a complete non-factor. I mean, DJ Turner played, I, I got to say, maybe the best game of his career because Outside of Ohio State's guys, I think Jaden Reed is the best individual receiver in the Big Ten. Like Maryland and Penn State have some guys who are good. Like collectively, I think those groups are better. But Jaden Reed is very good, and he had 17 receiving yards in this game. He was completely a non-factor, despite Keon Coleman being the guy who was getting safety help. DJ Turner just one-on-one shut him down entirely. Yeah, he erased him. And when you can put a safety over top of Keon Coleman and your defensive line can just one-on-one eat the opposing offensive line, I mean, that's, that's the story on defense. There was nothing else. Yeah, it was a very good adjustment. And I think it was Rod Moore who batted down that pass when he double covered. It was Coleman, right, there that he was Correct. That, that was targeted on that play? I did want to call out Rod Moore. I think he had a, a really strong game. I've mentioned a couple times that the safeties, I felt like, especially in zone, have given up some stuff over the middle where they've gotten pulled out of position. And 
because I've said that, I feel like I, I got to give some credit here. I thought Rod Moore was outstanding. I mean, he had the the breakup of the deep ball where DJ Turner and Coleman were kind of hand fighting and Rod Moore just came in over the top and swatted it away. He also had the interception on the final Michigan State He drive. also probably saved DJ Turner a pass interference there because that could have been called, but they're not going to call that when the safety bats the ball down before it even had the chance to get to the receiver. So, like, right. you know, if that ball had the opportunity to get to Coleman, they might have flagged Turner. But because Moore was there and batted the ball down well before, like, where it was abundantly clear he never would have had a chance to catch it because it was batted down, he probably spared the flag on that play, too. Right. Really good work all around. Also, one more on the secondary. Apparently, at halftime, so we were at the stadium and we didn't see this, but in the sideline interview with Mel Tucker, he was quoted as saying, they can't cover our receivers. Oh, buddy. <laughs> Well, negative one yards later for pretty much an entire half. Old takes, man. I wonder if he's got maybe a, a an updated take he can share with us, because I would love to hear it. I mean, the first play of the second half for Michigan State, they threw the uh, the deep ball to Reed up the sideline. And DJ Turner was right in stride with him, leaning into him, looking back for the ball. It was overthrown, so nobody had a chance to make a play on it. But that's a play where you, like, you, he could not have covered that any better. And that was just a statement, I think, of like, Nah, you're you're not doing this to us. You got one lucky drive that probably shouldn't have uh, even resulted in a touchdown because the Coleman catch for a touchdown was blatant offensive pass interference. But sure, you got one lucky drive. You got a couple plays. You've got a receiver who's a basketball player basically and can go up and and win a jump ball. But you you we saw what you got. We took it away, and you're done now. That's it. We haven't even done our rewatch of this game yet, by the way. So we're we're this is like memory slash what we've seen on Twitter since the game ended, because we wanted to get this out right away. I mean, people, yeah, like it, it, this is one that really could not wait under the circumstances. But I think we're hoping to do a rewatch tomorrow and then maybe record and preview Rutgers later in the week, just because. For obvious reasons, this one's running a little long. <laughs> Just a little bit. Without even really discussing the football aspects, it's running a little long. So, But yeah, before we move on from the defense, I want to highlight, I thought Jesse Minter for the second straight game was outstanding. I mean, just really took the opposing O coordinator to school once he saw a little bit of, like, here's one or two things they're going to try to do. Like, oh, okay, they got us once or twice, but I'm going to take that away, and then you've got nothing else. And I think he's really come into his own. I thought early in the year we had a, a couple of, gaps that I was like eh, I'm not sure like I don't feel quite as good as I did last year I hated the way we played Iowa that was so frustrating I thought I think that was more on the linebackers in coverage given that Iowa just really wants to throw to its tight ends I mean they functionally don't even have a receiver passing game and our linebackers in coverage are definitely not the strength of this defense probably are the largest weakness actually um, so I don't know how much that was on Minter it would have been a game where he, given how bad Iowa's offense is, it would have been nice to shut them down a little bit more. But all in all, I got to say, I mean, Michigan is now up to fourth nationally in defense in SP+. They've moved up six points and 13 spots in the rankings from the preseason projections going in. I mean, that is really impressive considering what we lost off this defense. So I just want to give a shout out to Jesse Minner. And on a related note, Michigan State's two fourth and one plays were absolutely dead on arrival. Hilarious. Yeah. I love them. Great job, Mel. I mean, the first one was An really... An extra $5 million for you. <laughs> Bonuses all around. Jay Johnson, where are you at? But yeah, I mean, both of those were just completely dead on arrival. The first one uh, near midfield in the first half, 
where uh, they tried to run uh, basically off tackle to the right side. And Mozzie Smith and Chris Jenkins both just completely dominated their blockers and strung that out in such a way where there was no chance that guy was getting a yard. I mean, that was the one where they marked him at the spot. And then it was so bad that they overturned it, which you never see. So that's impressive in and of itself. But <laughs> I was ra- like, I'm a menace in the stadium. I was <laughs> like absolutely ranting. Like funny, if you ask the Michigan State fans, I did probably 45 things in this game that are worthy of me being assaulted. Actually, oh, easily. Because all I did was talk shit and yell and curse at people. And I'm a menace. Like you don't want me around your children. I'm a menace. <laughs> like, I, I can't be Probably alone. fair. Like, I, like, there was a poor, like, Michigan State child, like a dead-ass 11-year-old, sitting right in front of Matt and I, and I literally turned to him at some point in the game, and I said, this is your initiation. It can't get worse than that. <laughs> so if you want to go to oh. road games, like, I'm about the worst you're going to get. Like, this is a very tough tough early test for the kid because so I was like, I'm a menace. I'm like, I, Throwing him into the deep end. How am I allowed to function? Like, I don't know. But I was absolutely about to blow a gasket over that spot. Yeah. I was so furious. I mean, it was egregiously bad. The fact that they overturned it is evidence, like, is sufficient to say how bad that spot was on the right, field. Right, because they never they get missed overturned. it by two feet, maybe three. Like, <laughs> it was that bad. Uh, but fortunately, they did get it right on the review. Um, it was, like I said, dead on arrival. And then the fourth down play that they ran... Uh, near the goal line. Near the goal line, right at the Michigan. At the, I think it was like the Michigan four yard line they were at. The four, the six, somewhere like inside the ten. Right, and they tried to run a counter, and apparently this was a play that they ran against Wisconsin in a similar situation for a touchdown, where they had Jaden Reed come across the formation in the opposite direction at the snap, as if he's going to take like a jet sweep handoff, and apparently Wisconsin kind of overreacted to that, like everybody shifted a little toward Reed's side, and that opened up the backside for the counter. But in this game, holy shit. I mean, Jalen Harrell was the guy who kind of shifted outside with Jaden Reed as he went along the line, and he was one of four players who met Elijah Collins two yards in the backfield. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a fourth and short play blown up that badly where you've got four guys meeting at the back, like at the running back before Just he even gets close to the line. It, losers. <laughs> they probably should have, honestly. What are you doing? I also will say that in the moment, I thought, I think it was 13-7 to 7 at that point. And I said, I'm fine with them going for this because I don't think they can run it on us for a yard or two. And honestly, kicking the field goal probably keeps them in the game longer. I mean, gives them more chances for, like, if we keep getting stalled out in the red zone, it just keeps them close long Meanwhile. enough to have, you know, weird shit happen. But in hindsight, I think they were probably correct. Like, they did not have much as this game went along offensively. And if you know that Michigan's going to put up 20-plus points and you're not going to have many chances, it was probably the right move to go for it. Ultimately, it didn't matter. But I just wanted to call out that like, I thought there was, in the moment, an opportunity to kick the field goal and kind of try to stay Afloat. in step. But ultimately, I think what they did was probably correct. It just didn't really matter because, again, Michigan was very good and Michigan State was not. Meanwhile, I'm like, they're going to get it and then they're going to kick off, and we're going to muff the kickoff, and then they're going to recover it, and then they're going to score again, and then they're going to be winning by, I don't know. And like, that's me, the entire she was game. just entirely, like, exasperated from beginning, and not quite beginning to end, but beginning until, like, in middle of the fourth quarter, where I was, I've never been more zen. I was like, Michigan is good. Michigan is bad. It's fine. This is Indiana. We're Michigan playing Indiana again, bad. except we're playing them at home. And ultimately, I mean, even with all the 
all, all the shit that did happen in the first half where they got the, you know, the, the Coleman deep balls and we got stuffed several times in the red zone, which we're going to talk more about. We still covered the original spread, right? It was 21 and a half and Michigan won by 22. I think it ended at 23. So if you took Michigan late in the week, they didn't quite cover that. But with all of that, I mean, this was not a competitive game. And the score ultimately reflected that, even if it was kind of annoying to get there. No, I mean, Bill Connolly's post-game win expectancy for the, like, advanced box scores that he does had Michigan at a 99.9% <laughs> chance of winning. So right. not and an, and an expected margin based on the statistical profile of the game of, I think, 25, Michigan by 25. 24.6, yeah. Okay, yeah. In other words, it was closer to a 25-point win than a 22-point win, and probably closer to a 30-plus point win than it was to being seriously competitive. Um, I think that's actually a good spot to transition over to the offense because I do want to talk a little bit about just what we saw there. Um, I kind of want to start with the passing game, actually. We talked a little bit about Corum, and I want to spend some time on him, but I, I think you, it Blake makes Corum. more sense to start with the passing game. And the reason is I think there was a lot of in the moment and even immediately afterward frustration of, like, this Michigan State secondary is fucking terrible, like maybe the worst in Power 5. And Michigan didn't do a lot in the air. Uh, JJ finished with uh, ch- checking the box score here 167 yards at 6.7 an attempt um, completed 60% of his passes collectively this was probably his worst slash least impactful game of the year as a passer at least but there's a pretty good reason for that which is that Michigan State and we were looking at this in the stadium I kept thinking given the way the game was going I kept kind of looking like this feels like a spot where we're going to take a shot. Like we're going to get single coverage and we're going to take a shot and try to break their secondary. And I didn't really see opportunities for that because they were playing very conservatively, especially with the safeties. I mean, they played two high safeties pretty much the whole game. And that's the third or a third time in the last four games. I think we've seen that between Iowa, Penn State, or really even fourth in the big 10 play. If you want to go back to Maryland where the opposing defense has either overloaded the back end with people in Maryland's case with like eight guys in coverage on about half our pass attempts or they're just seeing two safeties back and what that means is you're playing a man down in the box you're playing disadvantage in the box and Michigan's perfectly happy to play that way like it, it's a little bit confusing to me that we haven't seen teams try to challenge that more but Michigan State didn't and so there just wasn't a lot there there wasn't really anything there down the field I don't think I was a little bit I didn't think that the schematics of the passing game were great because once we kind of figured out early what Michigan State was doing and that they weren't going to try to overload the box and put our receivers in one-on-one matchups, I think we could have run like eight-yard outs against them all day because when they're bailing deep and trying not to get beat over the top, that stuff should always be there. And we didn't do a lot of that, which I thought made for a slightly more challenging passing game when we did want or need to throw. Yeah. It felt like the outs and the crossing routes, like the kind of middle of the field stuff really should have been there. And we did the crossing get routes were there a some. little bit on the crossing routes, especially to the tight ends, I think. Schoonmaker but. and Donovan Edwards also had one. I think that was something they saw where Michigan State uh, shifted Jacoby Winman from defensive end back to linebacker a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and but Jacoby got, Winman on Donovan Edwards is not going to go well even for Luke Jacoby Schoonmaker. Winman. I mean, at one point they threw a crossing route to Schoonmaker, who outweighs Winman by like 10 or 15 pounds. And he catches the ball and is running away from him with the ball. I mean, this was very obviously not a spot where Michigan State could match up in man. And so we did pick on that multiple times. I think that was something we saw and and realized, like, we can go after that and get some easy stuff there. I would have liked to see more easy stuff on the outside as well. I'm also 
we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, and I am a little bit coming around to the reality that our receivers, I think, are mostly just guys. I, I think they're all pretty solid players, but there's not anybody who's really regularly getting separation in man. We don't have guys who can go up and win jump balls. Ronnie Bell almost had a really nice catch. Um, I did want to point out that between the, the Ronnie Bell catch at the end of the game that got overturned, which would have been, I think, uh, like 29 yards, 26 yards, something like that. That was a beautiful ball by JJ. And there was also the one throw into the end zone that was right on Luke Schoonmaker's hip and it went through his hands and kind of under his arm and slipped out. Like those two throws would have given him a, a far more impressive, you know, he'd have been over 200 yards, two touchdowns, more like 70% instead yeah, of 60%. Yeah, but his one touchdown is kind of fake because it was that little like shovel to Corum. It wasn't really a touchdown pass that he threw. Like the one touchdown that is currently on the box score is not a real passing touchdown. Uh, yeah, that's fair. That, it's fake. That's fair. But I, I just mean collectively. Like I didn't think JJ played poorly. It would have looked poorly. better, but right. like context would have told you that that's not really, that's not like a real passing yeah, touchdown. Yeah, I, I just, in general, I don't, I, I don't think JJ played poorly. I thought he had maybe two throws where he just missed guys. And, I mean, that's going to happen for any quarterback. Like, nobody's, a, you know, perfect machine of quarterbacking. And I thought, for the most part, he identified what was there. He hit the opportunities he did have, which, in general, were more difficult than I think Michigan expected them to be. He also had three really important scrambles, including one on a fourth down and I think two on third down, where he saw an opening and immediately went for it and gained like 10. Uh, one of them was over 20 yards. It was the longest run of the day, I think, was 21 by JJ on a third down scramble. So I think he has started to figure out a little bit more of understanding what is in front of him in the passing game and when he can take off and improvise. And that's a big thing to figure out for a guy who has his overall combination of talent. Yeah, I want to say one thing that is kind of going to tie the passing game to the running game here, which is, you know, you're talking about playing too high, Mm -hmm. right? And trying to take away the big stuff, the, you know, the, the downfield bomb stuff, the like get beat on one play Mm -hmm. and suddenly be down seven points kind of stuff. And Penn state played that way too, I think. And I feel like spiritually the difference between this game and the Penn State game was like four shoestring tackles. Oh, yeah. I mean, Cora multiple times was into the open field and had somebody grab his ankle or just trip him up in a way where, like we saw in the Penn State game, his long touchdown run. I mean, he had one against Michigan State that looked identical, except the safety at the end got just enough that he tripped up and fell. And that very easily could have been a 60-yard touchdown. Right. So, like, the difference between, I think, the final score of that game and the final score of this game is literally just those shoestring tackles in a lot of ways because it happened to Cora more than once. It happened to Edwards at least once too. He was about, and when you think about, okay, in the Penn State game, long Corum run, long Edwards run, right? They both happened because Penn State missed those tackles. Michigan State happened to make them. But kind of spiritually, like those were the same thing, right? We were literally looking at the same thing. It's just right. like, you know, Michigan State was just a little bit more fortunate to be able to just barely do enough to bring Corum down or make him lose his balance or whatever. But ultimately, like, the difference in the in the way that we feel about the score and, like, that kind of stuff, I don't know how many of those drives, like, how many of the drives on which those plays occurred then ended up being drives where we settled for field goals instead of scoring touchdowns, but presumably some of them were. Right. And I so mean, at least one of, of them, because we only scored two touchdowns and had at least three of those plays that we just talked about. Right. And so, you know, 
if you're and right we only punted once so like it has to be the case that on some of those and even the punt i mean the, the punt very easily could have not happened because they had the review of the Ronnie Bell catch. Having looked at a couple replays, I think that was probably the right call. It looked like his bottom hand came off, and he just kind of had his top hand pinning it to the ground. So I don't think it was necessarily the wrong call, but it was also something that very easily could have stood based on the call on the field, Yeah. in which case Michigan would have had another game without a punt, which just shows you how impressive and efficient the offense has been, even if the kind of top line score number hasn't always been there because they haven't finished drives as successfully as you'd like. Right. But I mean, you think about finishing those drives and it's like those just ankle tackles aren't made or are made. And we're talking about an entire, like a 40 to seven, just obliteration, like a totally different game. And I do think that's part of the reason in addition to what JJ brings to the table with his arm and with like Roman Wilson and Ronnie Bell and what they can do with, even though they're not like, they're not great in terms of like getting separation or winning jump balls. Roman Wilson in particular can take the top off any defense. And I think that with what we saw early in the year from the offense, teams recognize that. But they also recognize that, I mean, if you watch Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards, you know that those guys can make people miss in the hole. And if they do that and you're playing aggressive where you've got safeties up at the line of scrimmage and you make one guy miss on the second level and there is no third level. So I think that's part of the reason that teams are playing like that. It's not just the passing game, but not wanting to get gashed for 60-yard runs, saying, okay, you can probably run for four, five, six yards of carry, but we're going to try to just hold you in check and make you keep executing and then finish in the red zone. And I'm not sure that's the worst strategy because Michigan hasn't finished very well in the red zone, but Jim Harbaugh is more than happy to run for five and a half yards of carry, which is basically what Michigan did for about the – fourth or fifth straight game the indiana game is the only one where they got held in check and that's the only team that's played them different but also jj had 320 yards and three touchdowns in that game so we haven't really seen anybody successfully kind of load up against the run and not get torched in the air and i think other teams understand that and know that like there's there's a lot of dangerous guys on this up a lot of ways they can score like big long touchdowns and if your best bet is bend but don't break, then I, I kind of think that's where defensive coordinators' heads are at right now. But, man, we should talk about uh, Corum and the run game because if you're going to let Michigan be advantaged in the box, I mean, this is the best offensive line in the country and probably the best running back in the country. And, like, Jacob it. Slade is a solid player. He got his ass kicked in this game. P.J. Mustafer is a solid player. He got his ass kicked when Michigan played Penn State. I mean, nobody has shown an ability to even really slow this run game down. And it was, again, 177 yards for Blake Corum at five and a half a carry. And then, you know, J.J. and Donovan Edwards chipped in another about 50 apiece. Like, this is a run game that can just pretty much do what it wants if you're going to play it straight up in the box. And there's not, we keep saying, like, there's not that much more interesting to say about Blake Corum because he's probably going to be a Heisman finalist and looks like the best running back in the country. But... One thing we did talk about was he had a couple runs in this game. The one where uh, he, bro- I think it was Michigan's first play of the second half, actually, where he popped outside and a safety got a hand on him and the ball slipped out momentarily. And Coram just like fucking cool as a cucumber, snags it out of the air in stride and keeps running. And then there was the one where Michigan started at its own seven yard line. And the first play, I think they ran counter to the backside. That might have been after right. Michigan State went for it and didn't get it. 
Like when that we might were right. backed up against our own end zone because Michigan State went for it on fourth down and That's right. got blown up, right? So we were like at the seven. He picks up like a zillion yards because he just will not stop churning his legs. He got 16 yards on that carry after taking contact at five yards and then again at eight yards and then again at nine yards from multiple guys. And he just like churns those little fucking tree trunk legs and carries the pile out to the 23-yard line. And all of a sudden, you go from backed up at your own seven where it's like, Ugh, you know, bad shit can happen here. And in a, a game like this one... <laughs> You, you just worry about something like this might be a situation just play it safe run it a few times punt if you have to and Blake Coram's like nah I, I got this I'm grinding out 16 yards getting us out to normal field position and we're rolling and that's the kind of stuff that just that dude was not gonna lose this game no he wasn't and a couple of things on that point number one I think most people who listen to this podcast probably follow jdu 51 who does his like Sunday breakdowns um right after the game and with respect to that play he put out a tweet he showed the play and then he put out a tweet of like every Michigan State player who gets a hand on Corum and is not able to bring him down and there were like seven I think it was nine guys including one guy twice who like almost got him didn't bring him down and then got back in on the tackle to only to like get dragged five more yards at the end of it like really incredible stuff deeply funny because I feel like I remember seeing a couple weeks ago some Michigan State fans saying that he can only he can only run when he is given a hole the size of I-75, I believe was the tweet I saw. And that's so funny because, <laughs> like, almost all of his yards in this game were after contact. Like I, I don't like, know if I would say that. I thought the, the interior line was I saw PFF doing some put out a work. stat about how many of his yards were after contact, and it was, like, an astronomical percentage of them. I can't remember what it was. I'm going to have to find it and maybe tweet it later. But, yeah. it, like, it was a lot. And I was, I just remember because I, I, like, I don't actually remember what the number was, but I remember when I looked at it, I chuckled to myself because I thought about that tweet. Yeah. I-75. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, get out of here, assholes. It's a nice combination, though, to have maybe the best offensive line in the country and the best running back in the country. And like I said, if you're going to play disadvantaged or play to take away the, the big pass, basically, like, you're going to eat six-yard runs in the face all game. And as it got toward the end, I, I think... It was not only that Michigan left their starters in, like they obviously wanted to score more. Like they, they wanted to run up the score. That was evidently the case. Like they ran the double reverse wide receiver pass with like three minutes left up by 22. Deeply funny, but I like it. It was the biggest fuck you I've ever seen from Jim Harbaugh, at least since the, uh, the Pete Carroll handshake, maybe. Very funny. But also, if you look at the play calling on those drives, they kept giving it to Corum. And a couple times they brought in Edwards, they brought in CJ Stokes at the end. But to me, that was kind of an additional fuck you. It was. We don't just want to, like, go put up seven points with a 60-yard touchdown pass and let your defense get off the field. We're going to punish you. You've been eating six-yard runs in the face. Here's another one. Here's another one. How about one more? Like, you're going to have to just sit here and take this until you can get off the field. That's and enough slices! <laughs> <laughs> but, but really. That was kind of what the play calling felt like to me. It was, it was punishment for the Michigan State defense. And... I think we've seen that more than once for Michigan this year, where as the game went along, you could just see the running game getting more and more effective to some extent because the defense just is, is not there or is cheating because they're getting beat up and they don't want to keep having to eat 315-pound linemen in the face. It's not a fun way to play on defense. Yeah, I mean, time of possession is fake, as we all know, but it's not fake when you're talking about this aspect of it. Like, of course, Ohio State can go score in 32 seconds, and they might beat you even if their time of possession is nine minutes. Sure. But, like, 
I don't think it's an irrelevant stat when you think about the physical toll that it takes on a defense to have to be out on the field that long when a team is grinding you down. Well, and when you tie it to something like, you know, if you look at first downs in this game, it was 27 to 11. Like when you're getting 27 first downs and you're holding the ball for more than 40 minutes, that's a sign that you're just, you're just marching. And I mean, shit, 52 carries, like... Carm didn't have all of those. This wasn't quite a Chris Perry game where he had the, the 51 carries against Michigan State. But spiritually, it felt pretty similar. Just a little bit more of mixing guys in so as not to, you know, not to overwhelm your uh, kind of the crux of your offense and a guy who should be a Heisman finalist. Totally. I do want to say one more thing about Coram, and it's kind of sad. We don't know how the rest of this season is going to play out. We don't know if we'll beat Ohio State. We don't know if we'll play for a Big Ten title. We don't know if we'll make the college football playoff. We might have four more games of Blake Corum, you know, these games against Rutgers, Nebraska, Illinois, and Ohio State. And if, you know, we go down in Columbus and we make a bowl game, I, I wouldn't hold it against him if he doesn't play in it because running backs, you know, it's so hard for them. Yeah. I don't so, suspect Corum. He doesn't strike, he doesn't me, strike as me as that kind of guy. It, he strikes me as a guy who will play. But yeah, I wouldn't blame him. I wouldn't blame him for doing it. That like We might be on the final four games of Blake Corum in a Michigan jersey, and I would really like to encourage you all to enjoy it. Like Just enjoy him while he's here. How much money do we need to raise in NIL funds to bring him back for his senior year? Did like you go if, buy that Powerball ticket? <laughs> I, did, I did not, unfortunately. Because I'm going to endow the Blake Corum <laughs> NIL fund when we win. I think a couple million would do it. I feel like we could we, we could make that happen. I'd give Michigan him 10. <laughs> I'd give him Mel Tucker's whole salary for this year. Well, he certainly deserves that much. I mean, <laughs> if Mel Tucker's getting it, I don't even want to think about what Blake Corum should be getting. Yeah. Well, Mel Tucker's salary should go to Kenneth Walker, as we all know. Correct. Actually, I, that one, dude better be getting royalties for years. About that, we talked about how bad Michigan State's run game was in this game. That was the best evidence for Kenneth Walker's Heisman campaign. Like, it's a shame we only got it a year after the fact, <laughs> because holy shit, that offensive their line is inability bad. to run the ball at all is wild in light of what Walker did last year. Like. That offensive line isn't markedly different than it was a year ago no. from like a personnel perspective. That it's wild how much worse it looks because Kenneth Walker is not there. Like the best evidence of Kenneth Walker's deservingness to have been a Heisman finalist last year and then to have won it is looking at Michigan it's, State's run game in 2020. It's his absence. It's his it's absence. Best evidence, yeah. His absence is better evidence than his presence ever was because Jesus Christ, that was bad. But yeah. anyway, Blake Corum. He's awesome. Enjoy him while we have him because he, he's so special and he probably will not play that many more games in a Michigan jersey. So just enjoy it. It's really hard to sometimes when you're getting caught up in the stress of playing in yeah. these rivalry games and I'm a ball of nerves <laughs> and it sucks. But he's really special and, you know, we should remember that. Yeah, I mean, take these next few games, whatever happens, to acknowledge the fact that this is maybe the best running back Michigan's had in our lifetimes, depending how old you are. I mean, I'm just barely old enough. Like, I don't really remember Ty Wheatley. I think he would probably be in the conversation. I certainly am old enough to remember Mike Hart. And when I watch Blake Corum, I, th I think he is Mike Hart, but fast. I mean, he just does all the things that Mike Hart could do and does it with a little bit more talent where he's going to stick in the NFL in a way that Mike Hart really couldn't. And so just just watching that and realizing, like, 
wow, like this is one of the best players I've ever seen play at Michigan. You got to kind of embrace those moments and, uh, like you said, enjoy them while they last. Also, Blake Corum is spiritually my heart because he <laughs> sat down at the press conference after the game. And the first thing out of his mouth is, I thought Tuck was coming. I just saw him running. Yeah, he said they had all those shirts. Tuck's coming. I just saw him running. (laughs) It goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where he just, like, he has this incredibly cutting way where he's, like, he's so cool and likable, but also, man, when he wants to, like, lay one on you, oof, God. I love him. Like, (laughs) just the best. My absolute favorite. I told Matt earlier today, I got to go get me a number two. I've never had a Michigan jersey, really. At least not one I ever actually intended to wear. I got, like, a clearance number 12 Adidas Mm -hmm. jersey at the M-Den. Like, it was probably a a Devin Gardner jersey, I imagine, when they switched over. Like, not the 98 Devin Gardner, but, like, his actual original number that I probably bought, I don't know, 10 years ago. I've never had like a real Michigan jersey that I intend to wear, and I'm going to go buy a number two. As you should. Yeah. Yeah, he, he really is Mike Hart 2.0. It's wild, and it's, it's really fun. I fucking love him. <laughs> I love him so much. Well, one more kind of, I guess, downer thing that I wanted to talk about uh, was the red zone issues, which Ugh. have continued to linger. I think it's pretty clear at this point. Like, It's the only thing that prevents this offense from being, like, elite. Correct. Like, truly elite. It really is. And it's it's been hard the last few weeks. I felt like there were a lot of kind of, I don't want to say random necessarily, but it felt like a lot of the things that were happening in the red zone that were killing drives were sort of one-off where it's like, that's ah, kind of a weird play call. We don't really run that. Or, ah, shit, that guy missed a block. And I've been trying to figure out, because at this point it's clear that it, it is an issue. I mean, they're substantially worse, less efficient, less whatever you want to call it. I think they were ninth in the Big Ten coming into this game in red zone percentage, uh, like red zone touchdown percentage, I should say. Can't imagine that got better. That didn't get better in this game. And given what we've seen from the rest of the offense, I've been trying to figure out what is it that is, like, is there a consistent theme that I can recognize here? Because we've seen them run, you know, counter or power, like get under center and, and just, you know, run off tackle, basically. We've seen them run zone read with JJ. We've seen them kind of get the ball out on the flat, uh, like to Donovan Edwards on a flare, or like a Luke Schoonmaker coming off the line of scrimmage out of the flat. We've seen them do all these things, and I realize that the kind of common thread here is what we haven't seen them do, I think since the Maryland game, which is throw into the end zone. And I think that's really a problem, because everything that they have done has been either trying to run inside or trying to basically move the ball horizontally. And when you're in a constricted space where the safeties aren't going to be playing 15 yards off the line of scrimmage because, I mean, there's nowhere for them to go when you're at the 70-yard line or whatever. Like, they're going to be at the goal line. So you're going to have all 11 guys at the goal line, no safeties dropping back deep like you have in most situations on the field, given what we just talked about, how defenses are playing Michigan for the most part. You're not going to have corners bailing off the line and cover three to try to not get beat deep. At some point, you're going to have to go more vertical. Like, it's not down the field vertical because, again, you don't have that many yards to go. But you're going to have to go into the end zone and get people to respect that and not play basically 11 guys at the line of scrimmage. Or if they're not going to respect that, then you just have to put it over them into the end zone because that's the space that's given to you. And I think that's really the the core of the problem here is that there are too many guys... A lot of the run plays are kind of slow developing or with a situation like a zone read, you can have a safety just hanging out watching JJ again because he, he doesn't have to cover deep. There's nothing to cover deep. 
And so almost everything that they're trying to do is basically just getting outmanned. Like you can't run zone read to the outside when you've got a safety just hanging out there three yards off the line of scrimmage. Like even if JJ makes the right read on the defensive end, which I think he did in this game, they had uh, Cal Halliday like scraping outside and a safety out there. He had two guys before he was ever going to get close to the end zone. There's just nowhere to go. And I think the same is true with some of the like the counters that I mentioned where they're getting up under center and trying to run off tech. Like you're, you're kind of trying to stretch things out horizontally. And when you've got a safety and, and you know all your linebackers sitting there two yards off the line of scrimmage, they're going to be able to string that out for the most part. So I think this is something that Michigan figured out pretty well in the second half of last year. I pointed it out in the preview episode when I talked about the offensive coordinator transition was they really fixed the red zone issues last year when they started throwing into the end zone on first and goal. They countered off their usual like standard down run heavy tendencies and said, when we have chances to put it in the end zone and we have a little bit of space, we're going to throw. We're going to take that chance and run play action and try to put it in the end zone rather than getting bogged down and, you know, at the four yard line, the two yard line where it's, it's even tighter space wise. And at that point, you're probably more inclined to run it anyway. And we just have not gotten back there this year. We did see it once in the Maryland game. Remember the uh, opening kickoff, they muffed it. We recovered it, I think, the nine-yard line. And the first play was um, like a, it was sort of his own read look. I don't think it was actually a read. I think it was play action where J.J. pulls, rolls out, and they have Luke Schoonmaker running like a corner route into the back of the end zone, and he hits him. He's wide open. And I don't think I've seen anything like that in the time since. And I think at some point you just have to, you have to be willing to trust your quarterback to throw into the end zone because everything else is just going to be too constricted, too clogged up. The only other option, I do think there's a second option, which is basically make the whole red zone offense out of the wedge, make the whole plane out of the black box. <laughs> like they can get two yards on that pretty consistently. They've done it all year. Occasionally it's gotten blown up when somebody came off the edge, a block got missed, sure. But for the most part, Michigan can get you know one or two yards on that. I wouldn't actually mind if when they're getting down to like the five, six yard line, if they said wedge is basically going to be our base offense. That's kind of how Minnesota's offense is. I mean, the base of their offense is basically down-blocking wedge interior run game with RPO attached to it. So if your linebackers collapse down, they just throw right behind you like a slant or something in-cutting to where your linebackers just vacated. I think that could work for a red zone offense if they just want to attach like a read to it, even some of the time, where if they come flying hell for leather off the off the edge, pull it, and we'll have a tight end rolling out there. And otherwise, just take the wedge and take our interior line's chances to get two yards. And if they can stop that three or four times, tip your cap. <laughs> but most teams can't. So I think those are the two options. And that is something we have to get figured out. Like whatever Matt Weiss and Sharon Moore figure out is the, the right way to approach that, there just has to be a better way because we can't be continuing to kick five field goals. Like you can't kick five field goals and beat Ohio State. No. That's just not going to happen. So that has to get fixed in the next three weeks. No, one thing I will say is I think in this particular game, I mean, this issue has dogged us for more than one game, obviously. Um, it's the only part of Bill Connolly's advanced box score where everything is red for us is all the red zone stuff. The rest of it is very green, and this part of it is red. Right. Um, but I do think in this game, in some respects, I kind of understand why they did it because Michigan State is not beating you unless you fuck up. They're just not going to. And yeah. so yeah, in the, the second half, it was the probably... conservatism makes sense in that way because it's like, if you go down and get three, five times, who gives a shit? They can't score 15 points. They can't score any goddamn points. So like, I 
I understand fundamentally why you might be conservative in that situation. It's kind of like playing Iowa. I mean, we play, we kind of played them like, okay. Right. You just can't commit turnovers. That's the way you kill yourself. And that's the only way they can win. And so they're like, we'll drive it down. And if we have to get three, we'll get three, but we can't walk away with nothing because if we throw the ball into the end zone, it gets picked off. It gets whatever. That's the recipe coming away with nothing is recipe. But even if we can only get three at a time, I still don't think they can keep up with us because of our ability to move the ball so consistently. Right. Right. So I kind of get why you would play this game that way. I don't think that absolves the fact that this is a fucking problem. I also think I would say that's true in the second half. Like we saw, especially I think it was Michigan's last field goal. They were third and 11. And in that situation, like, sure, you're going to be throwing, you know, a 12, 12 plus yard air yard pass into the end zone and risking a pick or something when you've got three points on the board and you're already winning, what was it at that point, 19 to seven, if I remember right. Yeah, like, something like that. Right. At that point, it was pretty clear that Michigan State couldn't do jack shit. And at that point, your best outcome or your safest outcome was kicking a field goal and just continuing to build onto your lead in small increments because, again, Michigan State couldn't do anything on offense. So it was pretty clear at that point, just don't do anything stupid. And you can put this game away, even if slowly. But, I mean, in the first half, that wasn't really the case, right? Like three, our first, uh, three of our first four drives, because the first one, Cornelius Johnson fumbled. But first three drives after that, we had one touchdown and two field goals. And at that point, the score is 13-7. to seven. And you have to still be thinking we're one play away from losing in this game because we can't finish in the red zone. Like at that point, I don't think Michigan was playing overly conservative. I think that was just more of an indicator of the problems that we've seen over the last several weeks in the red zone. Whereas I think the stuff that happened later in the game, that can probably be attributed to conservatism. Maybe, or maybe Harbaugh was just as confident as you all came along that they <laughs> weren't going to be able to hang for 60 minutes, and he played it that way. I mean, I don't really know. You're probably right, but, yeah, I, I do think for this game, I und- I don't like it, but I understand why you might play that way under the circumstances. That's all. Yeah, I just would like to see some indication that we have more of a more of a cohesive plan for getting into the end zone on the red zone. I mean, at this point, we're two-thirds of the way through the conference schedule, right? Or not quite two-thirds of the way, but getting close. And it's kind of getting late for, like, adjustments or things that you're going to be asking guys to do that are different from what they've done all year. And so... I mean, kind of. I was ready to jump off of a bridge after the Penn State game last year, and two weeks later, we beat Ohio State. So, Yeah, but we didn't really do anything different in that game than we'd done all year. It was just that Ohio State flat-out was not built to stop that offense. And we did exactly what we wanted to do all game over Luckily, and over and over. the part of the offense that Ohio State couldn't stop is the same, right? The same as what we want to do? I mean, the same as we did last year. I mean, the thing that we did was we ground them to dust, and we are still perfectly capable of grinding teams to dust. Oh, sure. Yeah, but I don't know that we're capable of doing that to Ohio State again because they brought in Jim Newell specifically to address that, and their run defense is now up there with the best in the country. And... Right. Like looking back at last year, I think we all had questions about, okay, you can't beat Ohio State just doing what we did against Washington. And, you know, we said that for a lot of the first three quarters of the year, basically. And then we totally did. And then we absolutely did. Right. So I'm not saying that, you know, Michigan can't beat Ohio State. In fact, we'll talk about this in a minute, but Michigan absolutely can and very well might beat Ohio State because they've looked. They played a game, they played against Penn State. They can absolutely. Michigan has looked pretty close to Ohio State's equal. And if you want to go off common competition, Michigan has looked arguably better. So, again, not saying they can't win that game, not saying they won't win that game, but the red zone issues are, to me, the biggest concern 
are maybe the biggest obstacle because we have a very good offense. We have a very good defense, almost right up there with Ohio State in, in both categories. Better on defense, actually, at this point, if you go off SP+, plus and not that far behind on offense. But if you can't finish in the red zone, that's why a lot of these games we've kind of come back to and said, on a down-to-down basis, it was pretty dominant, but the score wasn't quite as, as lopsided as it probably should have looked. So much of that has come down to red zone issues in Big Ten play that I kind of need to see them do it to have any confidence that it's going to actually you know, come to fruition against Ohio State and that they're not just going to like settle for field goals and be in a situation where you know, if you score 29 points against Ohio State the way you did against Michigan State, you're probably not going to win that game against that Ohio State offense. That You've got to put it in the end zone, which is what they did all of last year, right? No field goals in that game, six touchdowns on six scoring drives. I have not seen this team look like a team that's really capable of doing that against a real defense, which I think Ohio State does have this year. I don't think it's a great defense, but it's a real one. It's not the mess it was last year. So we want to talk about them and their game against Penn State? Yeah, we should. One other thing we should mention real quickly, just since we didn't get a chance to talk about it yet, and it's relevant to the red zone issues, Jake Moody. Absolute money, longest field goal of his career, five for five, special teams player of the week. He's kind of the quorum of special teams where it's like it's hard to say anything new or interesting about him. But again, we got to appreciate this guy because this is the second year in a row he's been maybe the best kicker in the country. And especially when you have an offense that doesn't always get into the end zone, that's a really nice luxury to have. So just want to give Jake Moody his due real quickly before we move on to some of the other games. Agree. Cosign. All right. Ohio State, Penn State. What a shit show. <laughs> just a coaching pillow fight in this game. <laughs> just, I mean, a coaching pillow fight. That's good. I was like, but I, man, I saw a lot of things that I thought were really interesting in that game. Number one, another frustrating one for the box score watchers because it looks like Ohio State was really, you know, considerably, I mean, they won by two touchdowns basically, but right. that game was much closer than that score indicates. And oh, yeah. I mean, Penn State took the lead with under nine minutes left in that game and outgained them. This was not the Michigan-Penn State game where Penn State kind of hung around and then got the doors blown off in the second half. No. This game was competitive. Ohio State had to come back to win in the fourth quarter. And that's interesting given that we absolutely annihilated Penn State in every way. Right. Um, the transitive property of football is fake. Correct. But, but on the collective, when you start looking at the overall balance of one team against common opponents versus the other team against common opponents. It's looking right. I mean, not we played that, Penn right. State better. They played Iowa better. There's a little bit of like. I'm not sure that's true. I think we outgained Iowa on a bigger like yards per play basis than Ohio State did. I don't know. They scored a zillion points in that Iowa. But also, all of that was good. was turnovers. I mean. I yeah. shouldn't say all of it, but the vast majority of, of that was coming off Iowa Penn turnovers. Penn State turned the ball over a lot in this game, too, which Oof, is a huge sure part, I think, of the reason why. I mean, Penn State might have been more. They were already very competitive in this game and perhaps should have been more competitive in this game if not for the fact that they were gacking up the ball all the time. Um, right. JT Tumalau had three interceptions. I'm not sure I've ever had uh, ever seen a defensive end pull off three interceptions before, so that was something something new <laughs> it's so stupid though because i'm like looking at this going ohio state and penn state that was interesting and ohio state's post game win expectancy according to sp plus is 96.1 <laughs> so like i the fuck me part of that is probably the turnovers though i, I mean again penn state outgained them in the I mean, yards penn state right? had four turnovers right it's very unusual to see a team win with that sort of turnover differential so i yeah i have to suspect that that's part of it but i mean penn state was averaging six yards per play like this was not 
you know, they did outgain them 482, 452, right? So the one thing I really thought was interesting is Ohio State appears to not be able to run the ball for shit. Yeah, that's that's about right. I mean, like, I really feel like the schematics of their run game have kind of, I don't want to say fallen apart, but they're not good. And Ryan Day doesn't really want to run the ball, I think is the problem. Like, he wants to throw the ball. He wants to come up with creative shit to do in the passing game and be the guy who out-schemes everybody. And that's just not <laughs> that's just not always the way to go about it. Like, you're throwing into the strength of that Penn State defense when you just watch Michigan put up 400 rushing yards on them and you can't run the ball. Like, that is that is a real weakness for them. They also lost Mayan Williams in this game to an injury, which I haven't seen any real indication and of. And we what... should point out there was no Jackson Smith and Jigba either. He did not play. Yeah, I'm starting to wonder if Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to play again this year. That's looking very uncertain. But, yeah, that is obviously – and it's also annoying that they lost two top 15 picks at wide receiver – lost the preseason probably best receiver in the country and probably still have the best receiver in the country and Marvin Harrison Jr. are close to it. Like, they're they're just a fucking wide receiver factory. And their passing game is, I mean, Ohio State and Tennessee have the best passing games in the country, and it's not close. But, yeah, the run game is a real issue for them, especially if Mayan Williams is out for any extended period of time. I think that's an area where he's just kind of a bowling ball. And when you play the way you have to play against Ohio State, which is a lot of you know nickel dime, uh, throwing a bunch of secondary guys out there trying to hold up against the passing game, he can do some pretty good damage against you even without a ton of blocking with just pure momentum. Trevion Henderson, I think, is less capable of doing that. I think he's very good, honestly, but I just don't think that their running game is structured in, in a way that it's going to be very successful against good defenses. And I mean, not just good defenses, but Michigan has maybe the best run defense in the country. So that's strong advantage Michigan right now for kind of forecasting ahead to that game. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I will say is, okay, Ohio State averages seven and a half yards per play here. <laughs> right. They're Ohio State. So ultimately, like, we're really, I mean, we're really splitting hairs to try to figure out, like, what relative weaknesses are on this team. But, I mean, Bill Connolly wrote this in his kind of advanced box score that he did, but he said, I mean – Ohio State obviously wins, and their postgame win expectancy is very high, but he says, I mean, if you told me Ohio State would average seven and a half yards per play with the plus four turnover margin, I'd have assumed they won by 60. Right. And and they didn't. And right. that's really the thing. But one thing for Penn, from Penn State's perspective is they were really good in the red zone in this game. They had 10 red zone plays. Their success rate was 60%. Their red zone a touchdown percentage was 66.7% and their goal to go touchdowns were 100%. So like you're talking about offense. Their offense, correct. Yeah, that's interesting because the exact the flip side of what I'm saying about Michigan or what we were just saying about Michigan is that they were really bad in the red zone in their game. Penn State I think hung in in large part because they were very good in the red zone. Well, I was going to take the flip side which is I thought Penn State was very good defensively in the red zone. I mean, Ohio State four Hilarious times. Hilarious when Ohio State averages seven and a half yards per play and, you know, CJ Stroud has 10.3 yards per attempt. <laughs> right. like, they were really good on defense, guys, we swear. But, but in the were. in the red zone specifically. I mean, Ohio State got held to four field goal attempts, which that again is just what we're talking about. Like if you hold Ohio State to four field goal attempts, they're not going to run you out of the building. Like, Michigan can hang with that if they can do the same thing as, you know, what Penn State just did and what teams have done to Michigan by bending but not breaking in the red zone. And what is interesting is that that's the second week in a row that's happened. They had the same problem against Iowa, which is why that game was close for so long. Iowa kept turning it over. Ohio State gets, you know, takes over at, like, the Iowa 27-yard line, gets, like, seven yards, and then gets stopped. And my understanding, we didn't get to see a lot of that game, but all the talk afterward was that 
Iowa basically just went cover zero and said, we're going to get pressure on you. We're going to make you get rid of the ball quick, and we're going to make you try to make plays into the end zone and beat our corners and our, our secondary one-on-one. And Ohio State couldn't really do that, which was surprising. And I don't know that I would say consistently that, or that Penn State consistently played it the same way, but between not being able to run the ball and Penn State's corners being as good as they are, it was the same issues. And I do think that Michigan has the secondary. I don't know if they have the pass rush. That might be something where they're actually going to get, be a little bit aggressive, more like Iowa was, and say, we're going to make you beat our corners and our safeties one-on-one in the end zone. And if you can't, then you're going to kick field goals. But I do think that's a, a route for Michigan to stay in or potentially win that game. Because we've seen it be a weakness for Ohio State against really the only two real defense. I guess they played Notre Dame in the opener. But that game, they didn't. their offense didn't exactly tear it up either. So all three games they played against what I would call real defenses, we've seen a path there where they either kind of got held in check in general by Notre Dame or even when they've moved the ball pretty effectively, they've gotten regularly slowed in the, in the red zone. So as much as that's a weakness for Michigan, I'm starting to think it's also a weakness for Ohio State. And that makes me feel a little bit better about things. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I walked away from this that Ohio State-Penn State game being like, I'm reasonably encouraged by what I saw. Oh, for sure. Like I, I mean, Penn State did not look like it belonged on the field with Michigan. And yeah. again, they were leading Ohio State with eight minutes left, or just under nine minutes left, I think, before Ohio State scored. And and then it they certainly turned did the not... ball over. Penn State turned the ball over Correct. right after. And... and Ohio State scored again, and then it was it was kind of over at that point. But uh, yeah, this this did not look. If you took the uniforms off, I would not have expected that that was Ohio State and the level of performance that they had after what I saw Michigan do to Penn State. I agree. Anything else interesting around the Big Ten? Uh, we talk about the fighting Illini. Fighting Illini. Have to be the favorites in the Big Ten West at this point. So funny. We said earlier when we did our preseason stuff, we were like, the team that's better than you think is Illinois. We did and say that. even we did not expect them to be this <laughs> much better. No, I thought like bowl eligibility, like seven and five. But this is also an indictment of the Big Ten West that, I mean. They haven't played an offense in the SP Plus top. Top 50. 50. Right. Bill Connolly can't possibly be adjusting for this, right? I'm a big. We know. I Illinois is now the SP number one plus. defense in the country in SP plus. No fucking but way. Yeah, I, I'm pretty skeptical. Just when you have not played a team in the top fifty, like not even a competent offense, like shutting them down is, I think, necessary to say that you have a pretty good defense. But there's nothing you can do against that quality of competition for me to be convinced that you're the number one offense in the country in the way that you can... Number one defense in the country. Number one defense in the country that you can hold up against, you know, an Ohio State, Alabama, Tennessee. Like, I, I'm very skeptical that Illinois has the the talent in place to hang with that sort of offense. And we're just not going to see it until they play Michigan. No, they Bill Connolly, I love you. We're very big believers in the way <laughs> in the way that your system works. I do not believe that adjusting for Big Ten West offense is mathematically possible. I, like, fundamentally don't believe it. There needs to be, like, back in the day, right? Like, I don't know, back in the day. I say, like, it wasn't five years ago. But, like, when the Big 12 was putting up absolute, like, tech mobile stats and nobody else was, right? Like, in the Baker Mayfield time period. Pat Mahomes. Yeah. Just some absolutely wild, like, 66 to 59 type of games. Take whatever their statistical profile is and like reduce it by a third for the fact that nobody in the big 12 plays defense. And that's not really true anymore. You know, the big 12 doesn't play defense, but it was true then. 
And that's how I feel about Big Ten West offenses. Like, if you're rating a Big Ten West defense that only goes up against Big Ten West offenses, you have to take whatever statistical profile that defense has. And even if you think you've already adjusted, you have to adjust more. Because those offenses are that bad. Like, I I literally don't... There's not math on the planet that will fix this. (laughs) No, because there's really no... I mean because they've played nobody competent it's very hard to kind of scale up and say what would that like that's what he's trying to do right but you really can't make a direct apples to apples comparison because it's not apples to apples i mean even you said big time west but i was going to point out that their non-conference schedule that they played so they played chattanooga which you know fc like mediocre fcs team that means nothing they played virginia who is checking 99th in sp plus offense gross and they played Wyoming, who is 112th. Gross. I mean, this would be essentially if Michigan just played, you know, Colorado State, Hawaii, UConn, and then, like, Iowa and Indiana. And you tried to gauge off of that and say, oh, this is the number one defense in the country. Like, well, maybe, but you, you can't really make that yeah. conclusion based Put on the evidence Put them up against hand. Tennessee's offense and let me see. Shut up. Right. You know what? Shut up. I don't believe this. I, I also think that it. if you ask Bill Connolly or, or even most of the people who are trying to do this sort of like, you know, genuine analytical analysis. I would expect that if you asked him, he would honestly say, like, I think if you put, you know, Georgia up against Tennessee or Alabama, like I would expect a better performance. There's just much more talent there. It's a, it's a more realistic, even matchup for them than it is for Illinois. So I, I'm agreeing with you that systemically, it's very hard to adjust for that when you don't have any real data points to be able to say, how does this compare against elite offenses? And you only have bad ones to judge against. Right. I mean, like, how do you, and comparing the Big Ten to the SEC, like the only Big Ten SEC crossover game we have this season so far is Penn State over Auburn, right? No one else played an SEC team in the I think that's right. Did they? And so it's like that Auburn team is absolute dog shit. Right. Like, and if you're starting to kind of say, okay, well, Auburn is here, Penn State beat them by this much, and try to kind of build out the rest of the relative locations of the Big Ten and the SEC from that data, like, that seems hard. I don't know. I'm a mostly a believer, but I'm not entirely a believer, and the reason why is because Illinois can't possibly be, like, the best defense in the country. <laughs> I'm really struggling to believe that they will, like, slow down Hendon Hooker and Jalen Hyatt or whatever. Yeah, I would just say, like, keep, keep in mind that Penn State and Maryland are both drastically better than any offense Illinois has seen this year. So Illinois is an interesting team, though. I mean, they're kind of like Michigan light in the fact that they really want they're to run. literally it's Wisconsin. Brett Bielema, right. Years. It's Brett Bielema, what he built at Wisconsin, is now at Illinois. And that's basically we want a power run game with all kinds of variations of pulling linemen and, and you know, fucking with your gaps and your linebackers. They don't have anywhere near the talent Michigan does. I mean, Chase Brown is very good, one of the best running backs in the country, but even he's not, I don't think, as good as Blake Corum and everywhere else across that side of the ball. I like how this became an Illinois preview. <laughs> That's right. But the one thing, they played Nebraska this week. They won handily. But I, I had predicted Illinois that Nebraska would upset Illinois. That was my thing. Because I was like, they can at least like relatively competently pass the game. But then Casey Thompson got hurt. Yeah. Um, relatively competently was probably generous to begin with. Listen. It's Big Ten West, okay? I'm doing my best here. But, like, Casey Thompson went down. Yeah. And so after that, it, but it was. Like, initially it was kind of close. Like, when we were driving to Ann Arbor, you were like, Serena, you might not be wrong. And then I was totally wrong. And I was sad yeah, they put it. it away in the second half. Nebraska didn't do much offensively. Well, yeah, no Casey Thompson. But right. those are our next two opponents, I suppose. So, or well, I guess after Rutgers. I forgot about them. Right. Sorry, Rutgers. 
Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about Rutgers on a second episode. We're going to have to split it out because we're already at like an hour and 45 minutes on this one. Jesus that's Christ. Okay, <laughs> probably we need to not. shut up now. <laughs> okay, one other thing. God damn it. <laughs> which okay. is Auburn, <laughs> this obviously has nothing to do with the Big Ten, but just purely from an entertainment standpoint, Auburn lost 41-27 to 27 to Arkansas. Auburn, the thing about Auburn is they're not even, like sometimes Auburn has been Auburn's very volatile. Let's put it that way. That's that's just kind of the like chaos team vibes Auburn around Auburn the at all times. Currency of college football. Well said. <laughs> Thank you. Right now they're not even they're not even chaotic. They're just boring and bad. I mean, their only SEC win in the last uh, over a year now is the game against Missouri that went to overtime, where Missouri looked like they were scoring to win, and the guy fumbled the ball through the end zone, so Auburn escaped. Oh, that was funny. Like, this is a really bad team, and not coincidentally, they fired Brian Harson this morning. Poor Brian Harson couldn't he, he couldn't stay on vacation long enough to avoid this forever. So he did have to come back and coach the football team. Back. So at least attempt to coach the football team. I don't know. I just wanted to point out that I've been saying for about a solid year now that Urban Meyer is going to be Auburn's head coach in 2023. I don't know if that's actually going to happen. Like all the initial rumors are that they that they want Lane Kiffin. I actually don't think that's going to happen. I that feels like a terrible lateral move for him. I mean, don't get me wrong. Auburn's probably a better job from a pure upside standpoint. They've played for or won a national title twice in the last twelve years, and Ole Miss has never come close to doing that in my lifetime. But God, that Auburn job just sounds fucking terrible. Like everybody who takes it ends up in just this shitstorm of politics and they're fired after like three years even if they have won or played for a national title is gus malzahn a saint <laughs> he might be because man that dude really he, he, lasted, he a really while lasted, lasted a long time without even winning a title i guess he did win when i was offensive coordinator and and played for one against that florida state team what a weird year that was looking weird. back on it now jimbo fisher and gus malzahn dueling it out for a, a national title oh jimbo that feels like many loses again, many many eons way. ago oh god yeah jimbo Whew, a&m and might not make a bowl game we're on actual uh bowl watch for texas a&m because they are now three and five that's your best preseason take you were like the most overrated team by far is texas a&m that was my best preseason take you're right really i just looked good. at the schedule and i'm like even if this is a top 10 ish caliber team which they have definitely not turned out to be just to be clear they still might go eight and four again and God, that was optimistic. Like I said, they're three and five, and they still have games coming up. They play Florida at home this week, which Florida's shaky, but God, the A and M offense. I don't know that they're going to do a whole lot against Florida. Then they play at Auburn. That one's winnable. Then they get UMass in SEC Cupcake Week. You know, the week before everybody's rivalry games and whatnot. And UMass is actually probably the worst team in the country. So even Texas A and M's going to win that one pretty comfortably. So they've got at least two wins left on the schedule, I think. But uh, even that only gets you to five and seven. Then they play LSU in the uh, the season finale, which LSU's kind of started to figure it out offensively. And, I mean, they're up to 15th in the polls. They look like they're I know, kind my of real, Brian is, Kelly is a fraud take is not aging well. That makes me sad because I really wanted God, Brian yeah, Kelly Yeah, we have to, to root for either Brian Kelly or Jimbo Fisher in that game. Nah, Ooh, that's giant a meteor. meteor game for sure. Yeah, that's the uh, Texas A&M Bull Watch. They've got their work cut out for them. Our other $95 million friend just earning those paychecks down there in College Station. <laughs> if you pay your coach $95 million, you do not make a bowl game after. That's what we've learned, I suppose. 
Just Michigan because, State's not making a fucking bowl game either. No, no, they're not making a bowl game. I mean, they've still got Illinois this week, and then I think at Penn State in the season finale. And like we said, that that if they lose both of those, they end up five and seven, and that's if they beat Nebraska and or sorry, uh, Indiana and Rutgers in the two interim weeks, which that does not look like a sure thing given where they're at right now, and given the fact that per SP Plus they are basically. Indiana or Rutgers or Nebraska from an overall performance standpoint. That sparks joy. We should end there. We should end there. I think Congratulations, that's, that's Michigan State. You're Rutgers. With that, God bless you if you're still here because this is almost two hours long. <laughs> but God bless you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back very soon.